if you're able, would you remain standing for the reading of God's Word? And we're going to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a sermon that's part of our 1 John series, but we're going to be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. This is the word of our Lord, 1 Corinthians 8, starting at verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of the things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge, for some with consciousness of idols, until now eat as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse." But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall we weak shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, there are so many different needs in our congregation. There are so many different struggles. There are so many different broken hearts and droopy hands. It seems impossible to be able to minister to all of them in one sermon. But you know everyone's hearts, and you know your word, and your word never returns to you void. So we pray that you use the preaching this morning to minister to everyone present, that we all might be um, pointed to Christ and elevated to, your, to your, the heights of heaven, that we might behold our Savior with the eyes of faith, for asking Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. God in His immeasurable mercy and goodness implanted in every one of us, in our very nature, a warning system to help us know when we are breaking His law. We call that system the conscience. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 19-21, through 21, the Apostle says this, 
And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. In these three verses, the apostle uses the word heart to stand for what we call the conscience. John is concerned that sometimes the conscience can be overactive and accuse us when it does not have a valid accusation. Remember, John is teaching that you can know that you know Jesus. He's interested in the true Christian knowing that he is safe, that she's safe in the hands of the Savior. That's one of the goals of the epistle of 1 John. He wants God's people to know that they are secure in their salvation if they are truly saved. So he speaks of the heart, of the conscience in this verse, and how it can be in these verses, how it can be overactive and condemning us when we should not be condemned by our conscience. To understand how and why someone's conscience can be overactive, we need to understand what the conscience is and how it works. And we started doing that a few Sundays ago. It seems to be an eternity ago, be three or four Sundays ago. So what is the conscience? Uh, John MacArthur calls it the soul's automatic warning system. It's something that is built in us, all of us, that helps us understand that we are crossing, that we are trespassing against God. The conscience is, is the innate ability to sense right and wrong, and everyone possesses it. Paul says that much in Romans 2, in verses 14 through 15, when he's talking about the Gentile, those that did not grow up in the church, in the Jewish church, those that are out there, never heard of Christ, never heard of God, and yet, because the law of God is written in their hearts, they know the conscience either excuses or accuses them when they break the law that's written in their heart. The conscience conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right and restrains us from doing what we believe is wrong. So God gave us a conscience for our good. But multitudes today respond to it by attempting to suppress it, overrule it, or silence it. Because it doesn't feel good to be told that you shouldn't do what you want. The conscience has been seen now as our worst enemy. And you can find that, that idea um, going back all the way back to Freud's writings. As you remember, um, we talked about that. The idea that you know, we have this um, super ego that's trying to keep our id are, uh, from doing what it wants to do, which in Freud's uh, thinking is having sex with everybody. Um, and this superego, their conscience is just damaging us and we have to get rid of it. And though Freud is, as a whole has fallen from, um, uh, from favor with most psychoanal- uh, psychoanalysts and the, the psychiatry and psychology in general, this idea that the conscience must be silenced is something that continues to go on uh, today. As we look at this idea of the conscience today, it's important that we know that the conscience is not infallible. 
It is not the source of revelation about, the, about right and wrong. The conscience is informed by truth or by what we think is true. So the standard is that it uses, the standard it holds uh, us to may not necessarily be biblical. And I think that's what John is addressing in chapter 3 when it says the conscience is accusing us is because it's using a standard of accusation that's not biblical and needs to be corrected. So the conscience can be needlessly condemning us in areas where there is no biblical issue, and the conscience can be reprogrammed. Uh, the world knows that. The world knows that the conscience can be reprogrammed, and, and that's why it tries to force ungodly ideas upon children at an earlier and earlier age. If you know, Governor DeSantis has been in the news of, of late about this law that he, he enacted in Florida, and uh, the narrative seems to be saying that, oh man, he's a bigot, and so on. But if you stop and actually read the law, without all the commentary, it just says that we should wait to have sex ed later than kindergarten. So he's not even saying teach this way or that way. It's just, let's take a, a minute here and wait till these kids are a little older before we start talking about these, these things. And yet, those that are for a perversion of what God appointed as far as sexuality are up in arms because they cannot further their mission, their agenda at an earlier age because if they can reprogram a generation's conscience so that evil becomes good and good becomes evil, they've won it. Now, we may not send our kids to public school, and, and that's maybe a good thing, but we can't abandon public schools because the rest of the world is going to public schools. And the next generation that we want to bring to Christ is going to public schools. And if more and more they're getting indoctrinated against the truth of the Scriptures... God can do whatever, but humanly speaking, it becomes harder and harder for them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and come to faith in, in Him. Because the conscience can be reprogrammed. Everybody seems to know that, and we need to be aware of that as well. In fact, it can try to hold us to the very thing the Lord is trying to release us from. The conscience can try to hold us to the very things that the Lord is trying to release us from. In Romans chapter 14, verse 14, Paul says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. In verse 23 of chapter 14, says, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith for whatever it does is not from faith is sin. So the conscience, to operate fully and in accord with true holiness, must be informed by the Word of God. We need to be filled with the Scriptures in order for our conscience to function properly. It is important to realize, however, that even when guilt feelings don't have a biblical basis, they are important spiritual warnings. We can't ignore them. They're signaling something. They might be signaling a weak conscience, but they're signaling something. And when we have guilt feelings from our conscience, 
that should spur us to seek the spiritual growth that we would bring, so that we would bring our conscience more in harmony with God's word. The conscience reacts to the convictions of the mind and therefore can be encouraged and sharpened in accordance with the word of God. The Christian wants to master biblical truth so that the conscience is completely informed and judges right because it is responding to the word of God. So a a regular diet of scripture will strengthen a weak conscience or restrain an overactive one. Conversely, error, human wisdom, and wrong moral influences filling the mind will corrupt or cripple the conscience. Now think of the conscience as a skylight, not a light bulb. It lets light into the soul. It doesn't produce its own light. It, it, its effectiveness is determined by the amount of pure light we expose it to and by how clean we keep it. Cover it up or put in total darkness and it ceases to function. And that is why Paul says that having a cure conscience is so important. As a matter of fact, he lists it as one of the quality, qualities in the office of a deacon a man with, who has a pure conscience. Now, if you have a conscience that's condemning you, that's, that is not working properly, perhaps, how do we cleanse the conscience? Well, the primary way the conscience is cleansed is by the blood of Jesus Christ in our salvation. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, the Holy Spirit says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And in chapter 9, it says that it's through the blood of Christ that our consciences are cleansed. So when our conscience mercilessly condemns us, the blood of Christ cries out for forgiveness. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And here we see that God designed the conscience to drive us to himself in Christ Jesus. That's the only way it can be cleansed, is through Jesus Christ. When Paul breaks forth in that great chapter in Romans 8, And he talks about and asks, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is nobody, because it is God who justifies. Now, does it mean that Christians can persist persist in sinning and yet enjoy a clear conscience? No. Paul says in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? The Christian does not remain in sin. The new birth involves a complete overhaul of the human soul. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, it's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A washed and renewed conscience is only one evidence there is a new life in the person. A cleansed conscience must be accompanied by love of righteousness and hatred of sin. Professing Christ and rejecting righteousness is spiritual suicide. 
If the only thing you can tell, you can do when you have an accusing conscience, say, oh, but Christ died for me, and you don't actually look at why you're feeling guilty, is to commit spiritual suicide. The Apostle Paul told young, told young Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 18-20, he said, this, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have shipwrecked their faith. When we don't listen to our conscience, we are in danger of shipwrecking our faith. So the conscience is cleansed by Christ, objectively, as He died for the sins of His people, subjectively, as we turn to Christ in repentance continually. That being the case, though, we cannot stop listening to our conscience without educating it first. We're never to ignore our conscience. Remember, remember the story of the airplane I told you a few weeks ago in the 1980s, 1980s, there was an airplane that fell over Spain in which the, for a few minutes, when they, they got the, 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 the black box in the cockpit, they could hear uh, an automated voice saying, pull up, pull up, pull up. And then the pilot said, shut up, gringo, and turn the warning system off. And then two minutes later, they hit a mountain. That's what the conscience does for us. We cannot ignore it. Our conscience is always telling us something worth listening to. It either, it's either telling us that we're sinning and we need to repent, or it's telling us that we need to be educated by the Word of God. These are the two things that conscience is always telling us, that we're sinning and need to repent, or that we need to be educated by the Word of God. The second op- option above is the sign of a weak conscience in that particular area. And I think that's what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 3. A weak conscience is usually hypersensitive and overactive about issues that are not sin. That's what John is saying, that your heart's condemning you when you shouldn't be condemned, that you're not sinning. So you're feeling guilty about something that's not sin. That's what Paul calls a weak conscience the reason the Bible calls it a weak conscience is because it is easily wounded, not strong enough to resist attacks. A weak conscience results from faith not yet weaned from worldly influences and not yet saturated by the Word of God. And brothers and sisters who have a weak conscience are to be accepted with love and not judged because of their conscience being too tender. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 14, verses 1 through 3. Now, let me say this. Most of us will have weak conscience in some areas and not others. There are things that uh, we may need to be educated concerning our, our, our conscience in some areas and, other, and, not, and not others. And that realization should cause us to be humbler towards those who have a weak conscience in an area where we don't. Because we know that we struggle in other areas. So those who have strong consciences must not encourage those who are weak to violate their, their conscience. Instead, the stronger brother is to defer to the reservations of the weaker brother whenever possible. And you know why usually that bothers us? Because it usually means that we may have to give up something we really like. Right? And uh, we don't necessarily want to do that. Not, let me not generalize. That's how, I've, that's how I deal. So that's my heart to, out there. 
Uh, usually this idea bothers me because it means that I probably have to give something up or stop doing something that I really enjoy for the sake of somebody else. And naturally, doing something for somebody else, I really dislike it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my natural heart apart from the work of the, of the Holy Spirit. And we have to be careful that we are not encouraged one with a weak conscience to overrule their conscience. Instead, both weak and strong must work on educating the conscience without pushing the weak conscience, uh, the one with the weak conscience, to, to sin. Now, one of the reasons why it's important that the one with the weak conscience, by the way, the one with the weak conscience is the one with more don'ts or more do's. That tends to be the case. The, to be a Christian, the longer your list, in some ways, of extra biblical things, length of hair, length of skirt, you know, drinking or not drinking, movies or no movies, and the longer that list goes, the more is a sign of a, of a weaker um, conscience that's not informed by the Word of God. Um, so one, but one reason, so one reasons, one of the reasons that weak conscience must be educated and strengthened is that it is dangerous. It is dangerous because it is likely to be over over scrupulous. It is legalistic. It is in danger to be troubled in an unhealthy way, and often will brew legalism in the church. That's why the weak brother is not to rule over the church. It's not a healthy thing. And we see an example of a weak conscience in the Corinthian controversy in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, the Corinthian church was torn by disagreement over the sinfulness of eating food offered to idols. The city, imagine with me, Corinth, was filled with temples where animals were sacrificed to the different idols. They had all kinds of temples, and each temple, all kinds of idols, and each, in each section, they have the priests and priestesses for each idol, and they would sacrifice animals. From, for those idols. But guess what? The idols had a hard time eating the food. So there's all this food left over. There was no government support for the priests and the priestess. So they would try to make a buck by selling the food in the markets. So a lot of the food sold in the market in Corinth was food that came from the temples that had been sacrificed to idols. The problem was that some Christians considered that type of food to be defiled. Therefore, they thought it was sinful to eat that food. Others, knowing that idols are nothing, had no problems eating it. So there's, there's the church split. Before you have the church split into factions. The eating meat faction and the wrong faction. Now, uh, the, the eating meat faction and those that had trouble with the eating the food offered to idols. And Paul wants to instruct them. And the first instruction he gives them is that idols are nothing. If we're following the reading of, of 1 Corinthians 8, you see that in verses 4 and in verse 6. Paul says that they are non-existent. As Christians, we don't even acknowledge them. We read that in Psalm 115 as well. Uh, how can a non-existent God defile otherwise edible food? That's Paul's argument. They don't exist, so they can't really defile the food. So Paul concludes that eating food offered to idols is not inherently sinful. 
The question of what foods are edible is a matter of complete liberty for the Christian, he says in verse 8. Do you, I hope you, you appreciate the supernatural nature of this statement by Paul. Remember Paul's background. He grew up and served in the strictest of the Pharisees' sects that was super strict about whatever they ate and keeping all the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And yet, through the work of the Spirit, he's freed from that to say, what you eat, spiritually speaking, doesn't matter. Still might give you a heart attack or whatever, but spiritually speaking, it uh, doesn't matter. Now, Paul points out that not everyone's faith is strong enough to embrace this truth. This is, this is very understandable. Uh, you get saved out of a certain cultural, and, uh, cultural background, and you often react to all of it. That you get saved out of the Roman Catholic Church, for example. And the tendency is to react completely about everything about the Roman Catholic Church. Even the things that, are, that they, may be, they, may be, they may have been right historically about. For a while, I couldn't sing that. So in Sunday school, uh, Sadie asked for Sadie Hunter asked for hymn one fifteen. The words of that hymn is written by Francis of Assisi. And for a while, I just couldn't stomach the idea of of singing a song by Francis of Assisi because a very strong uh, monastic order in the town I grew up was the Franciscans, and as a, they stood for everything in some ways that the Bible doesn't as far as uh, relationship with, with Christ. But that was a matter of not being educated, my, 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 my conscience not being educated by the scriptures. And you know, God enabled me to be able to now sing a song by Francis of Assisi. There's one hymn in our hymnal that, well, there are several hymns in our hymnal, but there's one specific that I just can't sing. Is one by Faber, uh, because it was written in order to be sang, sung during... Uh, the Inquisition, the later Inquisitions in the Caribbean. So, when talked about the faith of our fathers, is, is anyway, we digress. That's not where we need to go. Sorry. But this idea that once you get saved out of a particular culture, you tend to react by refusing everything, rejecting everything. And that's what the Corinthians were. We're saved out of this idolatrous culture, and now we are to eat food that were offered to idols. And Paul says, I understand you're not ready for that. And, be, uh, and, um, you know, because of that, then you need to be educated and people need to be patient with you. So Paul teaches that no Christian has the right to violate his or her conscience. Stronger yet, no Christian has the right to urge fellow Christians to sin by violating their conscience, even if their conscience is merely weak and condemning for something that is not sin. Now, let's use the... Let's use the example of drinking alcohol because that's one that uh, perhaps we are more familiar with. The weak conscience is not the one that gets mad at you for drinking alcohol. That's just the cranky conscience. The weak conscience is the one that might see you drinking alcohol, think that's wrong to drink alcohol, and go feels tempted to drink alcohol. That's the weak conscience. And I hope you see the difference. Right? It's not the one that gets mad because you're doing something. It's the one that's tempted to do the same thing even though they think it's wrong. 
That's what a weak conscience is. And Paul says, be patient with that brother. Be patient with that sister. Liberty in Christ is accompanied by an uncompromising accountability to our own conscience and by still a still higher responsibility to the whole body of Christ. And that's what Paul says in verses 9 through 12. Now, how do we solve the problem of the weak conscience? Now, throughout this discussion of those with the weak conscience, both in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, Paul treats the condition as a state of spiritual immaturity. So that's not something that you want to be in. You don't want to be in the place of a weak conscience. He calls it lack of knowledge in 1 Corinthians 8, 7. He calls it lack of faith in Romans 14, 1 and 23. And Paul clearly expected that those who had a weak conscience would grow out of that immature state, like children growing out of childish fears. So he expected the weaker brothers, the weaker sisters, to become saturated by the Word of God, which would in turn strengthen their conscience and enable them to experience their liberty in Christ. Because the weaker your conscience is, the less you're going to experience your liberty in Christ. So the state of deferring to the weaker brother, the weaker sister, is to be a temporary state as he grows in his or her faith. Let me use an example that was given to me by one of our members who will remain nameless. So that's an analogy. Think of of a baby, red. Think of red. He's cute. He's in diapers and so on. And, you know, but let's say that as Red grows up, he decides, you know what? I'm not going to learn to use the the potty. I'm just going to keep on wearing diapers for the rest of my life. And now Red is 42, completely capable, but still deciding that he just wants to wear diapers. And what's your reaction? Rose. Right? That's the analogy to someone who refuses to grow in their conscience. And the same way that we want to be okay with a 42 year old wearing diapers just by choice, because they chose never to learn to use the the toilet, we should not be okay with a person who refuses to grow in their conscience as well. And the church is not to be ruled by them either. Now, as we bring this thinking about the conscience, as we strengthen the, the, the weak conscience, how do we keep our conscience pure? We know that it's originally cleansed by the blood of Christ, but how do we keep it pure on a day-to-day basis for all of us, no matter where you are in your level of maturity? How do we keep our conscience pure while we confess and forsake sin? Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all 
and righteousness. Psalm 32 is a great demonstration of of confession, uh, bringing peace to the conscience, especially verse 5 where David says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And remember that uh, till he confessed, his conscience bothered him so much that he so, so much that he was having psychosomatic uh, uh, symptoms. Like his body was hurting; he couldn't sleep. His bones ached, uh, all because he, his conscience was bothering him so much. And he would not ask the Lord to forgive. To when he confessed the Lord, turn away from sin, then the Lord forgave, and he found relief. So, how do we keep our conscience pure? First, we confess and forsake sin. Also, we ask forgiveness and are reconciled to anyone that we have wronged. Matthew 5 uh, says that. Says, as, as you're going to worship, as you're bringing a gift to the altar, if you remember, oh, there's this brother, this sister, that um, has an issue with me. I have to go clarify it. I have to go reconcile if I need it. says, drop your gift Turn your car around, go talk to that person and be reconciled. Make restitution if restitution is needed. Don't procrastinate in cleaning, clearing your conscience. The Apostle Paul says that uh, one of the, one of the uh, hallmarks of his ministry is this. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. That's a priority in his life. And then educate your conscience. And an important aspect of educating the conscience is teaching it to focus on the, on the right object, which is divinely revealed truth. This makes so that the conscience not only condemns sin, but also praises the work of God's grace in our lives. Brothers and sisters, God is, in His great love, has given us a warning system. And that system is designed to point us to Christ. That system is also, has also been corrupted by sin. And sometimes it goes off when it shouldn't. Yet, even in its corrupted state, it points us to Christ. So my brother, my sister, if your conscience is convicting you of something, no matter what, take it seriously and then run to Christ. Run to Him, and He'll sort things out for you. As the Spirit works in your heart, and as you read His Word, He will sort things out for you. Let us pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word, and thank You for giving us Your Spirit for us to understand it. We pray that in the foolishness of the exercise of preaching, Your Spirit will see fit to encourage us, to lift us into Your presence, and to renew our conscience. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ died for all our sins. Educate us where we need. Help us to faithfully follow you. For asking Jesus' name, amen.